Today I have a very exciting episode for you guys and it features Mark Perry, who is the developmental officer for Ocean Conservation Trust. They're currently doing a lot of work to help protect seagrass in the UK, but in this episode we talk about seagrass all over the world, its importance in our ecosystem and environment, how it contributes to animal habitats, why it's so important for carbon sequestering and decreasing the impacts of climate change, how it can restore the balance of our oceans, and of course, the crucial role it plays in the biodiversity for fisheries. In this episode, Mark really chats all about the things from citizen science to scientific knowledge to the journey one takes from working as a surfing instructor to in the oil and gas to ocean conservation. We had a great time chatting and I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Mark and you guys learned something as well. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or want to learn more about the Ocean Conservation Trust or some of the amazing projects they're working on, head on over to their website. Um, thanks to the EU Recreational Remedies for their grants to be able to do this amazing work. And yeah, oceanpancake.com will have all the links and details for you guys to check out. Feel free to check it out while you're listening or just pop this in the pocket and let's go. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean. Whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, if the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Okay, <laughs> hi, and welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. I am here joined by Mark Perry, who is the, the Development Officer for the Ocean Conservation Trust in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Good morning, Kat, or good afternoon, should I say. There's a bit of a time difference, but uh, yes, thanks for having me along. No worries. Since I butchered that um, word so much, would you be so kind and kind of tell everyone, what do you do, who are you, and well, yeah, let's just get started. <laughs> So we're a charitable organisation and we run a very large aquarium in the UK, but uh, we're also um, owned and run by the Ocean Conservation Trust. So my role there as a development officer is to um, uh, firstly look for funding opportunities, so grant writing, um, and then if those grants uh, applications are successful, more often than not, I get involved in the delivery of those projects. So we've been historically very successful within seagrass-orientated uh, projects, but have also been involved in um, sort of arts council bids, as well as um, uh, bivalve hatchery bids and, and trying to spawn um, our native scallop in the UK, which is, all of these projects are really tricky to do, which is, uh, you think 
breeding a scallop or growing some seagrass would be reasonably straightforward, but um, neither of them are in a closed, closed environment. How did you manage to get into this? Because, you know, we we all talk about coral reefs or dolphins as the kind of sexy things in ocean conservation, but scallops and seagrass, what brought you there? Okay, so I started my career in um, sports development in a, a sort of water sports uh, um, frame. And I did a degree in sports science and it had some near near shore coastal geomorphology attached to it, as well as some business aspects. Um, I worked in that till I was 30, realized that this um, sports development wasn't going to see me through the rest of my career. And I, I went back and studied more physical oceanography. Um, from there, I ended up at sea uh, for roughly about seven years uh, working for uh, environmental services for oil and gas and um, uh, acquisition companies so um, uh, yeah oil and gas exploration effectively um, spent seven years at sea got really quite tired of, of being away from home so much um, we were involved in environmental baseline surveys and habitat assessments during that period and um, I'm from Plymouth, I grew up in Plymouth, and Plymouth houses the largest aquarium in the UK, which is the National Marine Aquarium, which is, as I said, is a charity. Um, looking for work back home, there was a project that came up that was seagrass for seahorses. And the aquarium was interested in the abundance of seahorses over the south coast of the UK. Uh, we have two different types of seahorses and they are strongly associated with seagrass habitat. So um, applying for that role, it appeared that they hadn't actually procured the funding. Um, I'd been involved in some small funding bids before and um, as well as sort of being self-employed up until that stage, um, knew a little bit about finance. So I confidently said, yes, I could put a half a, half a million pound bid together for the aquarium. And through the, through the development of that, it became apparent very quickly. And also being a British diver, um, our seahorses in the UK are, are very rare. Um, and we don't really have a, a great number of them. So the project was designed to ask volunteer divers and recreational divers to get involved in uh, counting and, and looking for seahorses over the south coast of the UK. Now, this had a couple of flaws, I think. Um, one, they're very hard to find and, and very rare. Um, so in the event that we didn't find any, it wasn't going to be an overly um, uh, um, engaging task for these volunteers to be in. Um, but also they're protected under the a, a Wildlife and Countryside Act in the UK. So to actually look for them or disturb them or photograph them, you need a, a, a marine management organization wildlife uh, license. So it sort of, it was counterintuitive to send 150 volunteers out looking for protected species without the, um, without the correct documentation. And that would have been hard to get. So um, we turned around and said, well, actually the, the the important bit here um is is the habitat and the um the primary producer of seagrass 
And really what we're doing is we're getting, we're looking to use an umbrella species such as seahorses to get British divers involved in um, a, a really biodiverse habitat that we have in the UK. So whilst it might be a bit of a harder sell at this stage, why don't we focus upon seagrasses rather than seahorses? And um, seven years ago, um, the, um, it seemed that there were only a number of, of small interested parties in seagrass conservation and um, uh, sort of coverage of seagrasses and conservation of seagrasses. Whereas now that's um, that's changed. So, um, but we did have uh, over 150 volunteers in that program, and um, <coughs> excuse me, um, they learnt. So they were many of them were divers, some of them were sailors, some of them were kayakers, and the idea was for the the divers to um, look at the coverage of seagrass and health of seagrass, the sailors were to look at water quality and the kayakers were looking at um, new extents or, or different coverages, different areas where there might be seagrasses that we didn't know. So a rambling answer, but I think that answers your question. No, that's a beautiful answer. I was just taking notes because there's so many things I wanted um, to ask more about. Um, like, how did you find the people to volunteer, like the kayakers and the divers to get involved? Was it just a call to action or, you know, did it go through the universities or how did you get people to get interested, especially since you were saying that seagrass wasn't as popular of a subject seven years ago? Um, so we teamed up with um, numerous other nonprofits in, in the um, southwest of the UK. Um, and also we worked with uh, Sea Life Entertainment or Sea Life Aquariums. Mm -hmm. So the way that we structured it is we had a project officer in, um, in one geographical area and then well, we had three, sorry, project officers in three geographical areas, each positioned in a, um, a sort of hub for um, nature conservation and each one of those attached its own following. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was their day-to-day -day workspace and they had the support of the, um, of the charity or in, in um, the case of Weymouth, uh, Merlin or uh, Sea Life um, Aquariums, I think they're owned by Legoland now. Um, and that gave us quite a big platform to speak from and um, slowly the, um, um, the number of people that were interested in it, we did a lot of talks. Um, we offered um, spaces to come out and um, come surveying with us. We, we ran short courses on how to survey. We were fortunate through the funding to be able to buy uh, the equipment for surveying, so photographs and um, various other bits of, of scientific equipment that we sort of cobbled together and made ourselves. Um, and I think the volunteers, they very much enjoyed that sort of exploration of um, certainly the divers, they, um, diving is quite an expensive thing to do. And, and in the UK, you have to buy a lot of kit. Yeah, um, it's cold. <laughs> um, it's not, it's a little bit easier in, in the tropics because you can sort of jump in in a, a small wetsuit. But um, to be a dedicated British diver, you need a lot of kit. And um, we, we sort of, there are a couple of different citizen science projects that ties into that. 
um, and because there's uh, the Marine Conservation Society Sea Search Program, which um, really looks to say, okay, those of you that are the proficient divers and you'd like to learn more about some of the squidgy things near shore, because there's a, a whole group of divers in the UK that are only interested in sort of World War um, World War wrecks and uh, rusty things and um, trying to trying to get brass from portholes and things like that. But um, uh, yeah, focusing upon the uh, the group that were interested in natural history, they were trained divers and um, offering them the, a sort of easy route into that. And certainly in the UK, some of our most um, knowledgeable and um, experienced and enthusiastic natural historians and underwater taxonomists they're, they're actually volunteers they're, they're um they don't do it as a full-time job yeah um and there's a difference i think between the sort of academic science and and the sort of higher higher echelons of that and getting into the water and spending time on the ground because of certain rules and regulations is really quite a hard thing for them to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas a recreational diver can go off and um, pretty much do whatever they want to do if, if it's um, part of a st structured project. And yeah, we've got a good history of volunteers collecting some really strong, um, meaningful scientific data. Um, albeit it's, it's quite simple, but mm -hmm. when you take a large group of people over a long length of time, collecting quite simple information, it, it weighs up to be um, something quite powerful and something that's not necessarily achievable by um, some academic institutes that might only have a couple of weeks to do, to do field work. So um, tying into that community um, and um, offering them sort of uh, ways to develop themselves as divers and to create a better understanding of the environment that they're seeing. Uh, we're sort of pushing against an open door in the UK. And I think um, you might think that that's sort of counterintuitive because a lot of people think of the, the, the coast of um, Western Australia and think it's, it's beautiful, um, clear water and this abundance of life. But we've got just as much abundance in the UK obviously temperate waters um it's just slightly different um species and um it's slightly colder so Sl slightly colder yeah i mean we don't always have beautiful clear water i mean here in the summer it may be 32 degrees in the water but the visibility is also only five meters or two meters sometimes because of the algal blooms because of the heat so right. you know right. there are there are definitely positive and negative things of this kind of more tropical area. But um, the, times I, the times that I've been diving in Australia, the visibility has been very good. Um, so yes. <laughs> I've, I've been okay about that because you can see anything coming towards you. Whereas in the UK, you don't have to worry about big things coming towards you. And um, uh, we do get some um, seasonal visitors of, of blue sharks, but that's, that's, um, Nothing to worry about. Do you not see many sharks off the coast of um, southern England? Are they there see, or are they just not coming near to shore? Yeah, we see a number of, of smaller species. Mm -hmm. So um, dogfish and um, 
so they would only be i don't know 50 to a meter mm -hmm. well that would be quite a big one but um <laughs> and then we've got sort of taupe and um which is a, a slightly bigger species but uh people recreationally fish for those and mm. um, then they're, they're sort of placed back on a catch and release program but um the the uh, shark that we most uh, frequently see during the summer when it's very flat and calm would be the uh, baskin shark oh um, wow you see i've are, never seen one of those <laughs> oh they're huge and they're, they're amazing things to see um, and they're sort of very slow moving because mm -hmm. obviously they're just um, they're just feeding on plankton. So, yeah, we have um, as divers, there's there's very little in the um, in this environment that would harm you. Um, just perhaps some strong currents or, or rough seas. So um, British diving is quite tricky at times. But um, yeah, the uh, quite an inert sort of uh, um, wildlife selection. So. Still, still sounds good. One, one day, one day I'll get back into my dry suit and try a try a dive in Europe. It's been a few years. <laughs> I love my dry suit. It's one of my. It's it's one of. I prefer to go diving in my dry suit than a wet suit. To be honest. It's yeah, I used to just wear my pajamas in my dry suit, just roll straight <laughs> out of bed and just jump in. That was still in Australia, so I don't I don't know how I'd do with actually cold water. <laughs> episode is sponsored by you guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode, like it, share it with your friends, give us a rating. That would be amazing on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to it. It means a lot and it helps this uh, podcast to reach a larger audience. Um, also, if you want to help even more, you can become part of the family on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ocean pancake podcast where I share behind the scenes and um, lots of photos and videos and we have very fun chats over there. So head on over there or the discord. There are so many places we can stay in touch and strengthen this ocean community because it's about all of us working together in all of our different fields of specialty um, to yeah protect our oceans and make this a cleaner, greener, more turquoise earth and world. Hope you guys are doing well. Let's get back to Mark. Um, you were saying that um, the the conservation of seagrass has kind of grown in popularity. Do you have any theories of why that's happened? Is it simply uh, due to the increased understanding of the value it has uh, for the marine like environments or you know, have these projects such as the ones you guys were part of helped to kind of push it to the forefront of marine conservation or even conservation in general? Yeah, I'd like to think it's it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, when we started down this, this road, there were very few organisations um, discussing seagrass, certainly within the UK. There were, um, there's a number of academic institutes through Europe that have recognized the significance of it and, and performed sort of work on um, on studying the value of its ecosystem services. But um, our project was quite different. It was a, a large engagement project and the mm -hmm. idea was to get sort of uh, people involved and engaged and um, become stewards of their, their um, habitats that are on their, their doorstep. Because when we started, 
um, many of the people that we spoke to could have told us more about the plights of coral reefs than the plights of some of the habitats on um, on the doorstep. And I think uh, the television has a has a, a really important part to play in that um, because I think predominantly where people get um, the general public, if you haven't studied marine science or, or marine issues, um, take that from some the television. So. Um, the, the narrative has changed from us talking about ecosystem services and um, I think there are examples of other projects worldwide that have taken um, an umbrella species, whether it be seahorses in the UK or, or um, manatees in, um, in uh, Australia or uh, Southeast Asia. Um, or turtles and, and rather than trying to engage people in seagrass conservation through these charismatic animals there has been a, a narrative change to actually this is a primary producer and which doesn't sound as interesting but um, <laughs> significantly more important and I think there's there's a shift in conservation as well to for, for, rather than talking about species um, within a climate emergency, we're, we're, we're making that shift from, um, you know, species are important and there are some amazing examples of uh, conservation of individual species. But if we're in a climate emergency, we need to start thinking about overall habitats. Um, and very much over the past sort of 18 months, two years, the narrative has changed from um, okay what does seagrass do mm -hmm. to a strong focus on on carbon yeah so it's been it's been sort of uh detailed or published that seagrasses are in very efficient at storing carbon mm -hmm. um in fact all coastal vegetative habitats which also doesn't sound as sexy as uh, as the man uh, manatee or the seahorse but um uh so mangroves salt marshes and seagrasses that they're all very efficient at storing uh, carbon and that's because they're storing carbon from outside of the source outside of that, um, that ecosystem and they're burying it in the sediments and without the um, without air for that um, that organic carbon to, to um, degrade down um, then it's it's not sort of uh, remineralized back into the atmosphere Whereas our terrestrial habitats, um, only a small proportion of the carbon that comes from the biomass of the tree actually ends up down in the soil and in the, in the roots. And that's mm -hmm. where it counts because it's out of the carbon cycle. Yeah. So um, seagrasses are, are incredibly efficient at doing that. Um, and there is a there's also a biodiversity net gain. Um, with looking after them or restoring them or trying to expand the area of them because they support fisheries and um, uh, are a primary producing habitat for, for um, many of our commercial as well as ornate and interesting and endangered um, fish species. So yeah, the, the interest is has arisen from um, I think a, a desire or a um, a want to um, uh, try and do something about all of the carbon that we have in, in 
that we've already admitted. Mm -hmm. So we hear a lot about sustainable ways in which we can change our our behaviours and drive different cars and and reduce our um, footprint, uh, flying less, eating less meat, for example. Um, but we hear less about how we absorb the uh, the atmosphere that we've already admitted. Um, and there's various sort of technologies that are being created, but actually nature did it for us um yeah create plants so um there's no real need to um uh, go developing huge expensive machinery to suck this this carbon out plants do it for us so creating spaces that are um prospectively just sand at the moment mm -hmm. um and support less life than the complex habitat of a, of a seagrass bed or a salt marsh or mangrove bed um then yeah that seems to be an, an option or, or um, a conversation that a lot of people are having and um but the reality of, of trying to restore these habitats whether it be uh, mangroves because you've you've got obviously competing land uses mm -hmm. um you've got um not so much competing land uses with seagrasses but they're actually quite hard to grow they're quite hard to restore especially from seed, it's sort of where do you get the material, uh, much of it's subtitle, so it's, it then starts becoming expensive. So there's a number of people or a number of organisations that are, are working to understand a, um, a method of success for larger scale restoration. And you can understand why there, there'd be an interest in that, because not only one are you sequestering carbon effectively, efficiently, and for a long, long period of time, um, you have less competing land uses in an area of perhaps what would be bare sand, but then you also get the added ecosystem service of um, uh, of supporting fisheries and um, offshore uh, populations of, of um, commercial fish. Yeah, you've really kind of um, touched upon all the things, which is what what are the value of um, seagrass and the habitats and then um, why they're important to preserve. Uh, you kind of uh, mentioned it that, you know, the plight of the seagrass. So what is damaging seagrass or what are the kind of primary causes for the degradation that we are seeing across the world or specifically in the UK? Um, I suppose primarily it's, well, it's a plant. Um, mm -hmm. So it needs to, it needs to photosynthesize. So it needs sunlight and it needs nutrients. Um, when it receives too much nutrients, then you get a lot of epithetic growth on it. There's uh, algae growing on it, which then stops the, the photosynthesis. Um, so I would say water quality issues. Mm -hmm. um, and whilst it's, a, it's incredibly effective also at, at removing uh, nitrogen from the uh, coastal watercourse um, in a similar way that it, it removes uh, uh, carbon, um, too much nitrogen um, from agricultural land and runoff um, can cause quite extensive algal blooms or algal coverage uh, over the plant so that it sort of just uh, uh, smothers that photosynthesis. Um, there is a lack of, of understanding of where it is. I think mm -hmm. um, and 
So areas that might be visited heavily by recreational uh, water users using jet skis and, and power boaters and um, uh, that's that's an issue and that's something that we work with in the project that we're currently running with with the partners of the uh, Royal Yachting Association Green Blue um, sort of initiative, which is the environmental initiative of the RYA. Um, but also um, sort of dredging as well. We get sort of turbidity issues. Um, and once you sort of stack all of those, those uh, pressures up, then um, if you add a, a storm or an anchoring event, or a, um, um, there is a small amount of, of dredging that goes on within the areas within the UK, uh, we do see some bottom dredging damage which is uh, which is a shame really because they're, they're sort of protected areas and um, certainly trawling or dredging over those areas is not permitted but still people go in there um, and there's a lack of understanding I think within the UK that um, these are nursery nursery grounds for um, many commercial fish whereas I've noticed the the one of the strongest lobbying um, lobbies for seagrass conservation in Australia seems to be the fishing community mm -hmm. um, and it's not the same in the UK which uh, is is something that we're trying hard and, and work it, it, it that's a slow process you know you don't go into a fishing community and say you've got to stop doing this you've got yeah. to, you've got to work with them over a long period of time um, but there's certainly organizations that are that are doing that um, and there was a um, a significant sort of disease event back in the 1930s that's quite frequently spoken about in this this huge sort of northern hemisphere intercontinental band of, of Zostra Marina uh, and we still see that disease present in the seagrass beds that we find around um, the UK so we the species the predominant subtitle species that we find in the UK is, is um, in the US and um, through Scandinavia and uh, I think it, it almost reaches down as far as um, California um, as well as through other areas in Europe um, so it's big big coverage mm -hmm. and um, a lot of that was lost through a wasting disease event and you'd think that with many of the mechanisms of loss being addressed whether that be through the European water frame directive or whether it be through working with fish, fishermen and working with recreational boaters that we'd like to see these areas are recovering. Um, unfortunately, they're not, they're, they're still sort of in decline. Um, so if we know where it is, we've, we've taken measures to try and improve its, uh, its condition and it's still failing its uh, sort of um, official legislative assessment every period that it's assessed then the last thing we've got to think about is uh, or we have started to think about sorry is uh, restoration of, of seagrass beds um, and that's that's quite tricky in itself again um, so yeah there's, there's multiple pressures many of them have been addressed there's still remnants of them um, certainly not in the in the intensity that they've historically been those pressures but um, You'd like to think that that conservation then raises the, the health of the seagrass bed 
uh, or seagrass areas. And in some places it works and, and there's some fantastically healthy seagrass beds around, around the UK. And it's thick, dense, luscious. And um, in other areas, it just becomes sort of patchy and, and sparse. Um, and it's trying to understand what the difference between those areas is, is, is why in literally I can think of, uh, of um, two seagrass beds within uh, Plymouth Sound, which is uh, the natural harbour of Plymouth down in, in Devon. Um, there is a very healthy seagrass bed mm -hmm. um, in, in one mouth of a river, of an estuary, and then um, a very sparse, patchy one in, in a different area. And it's so there's environmental conditions that are also uh, leading to uh, these beds being healthy and, and and there's not we've got quite a bit of understanding about seagrasses but um, we certainly uh, we're not as familiar with trying to grow them or care for them as some of our agricultural plants or mm -hmm. um, a tomato for example yeah. 200 years ago I, I can't imagine people people were probably scratching their heads thinking how do we grow tomatoes and look after tomatoes best but um, we're sort of at that space with seagrasses at the minute, I think. Yeah, we're still learning. So, so far from what we do know, how can we help uh, protect the seagrass? Whether it's, you know, from your kind of perspective as, as an organization and the, the projects you are running versus how can individuals contribute to helping, whether that's volunteering or little changes in their own lives. So what does seagrass conservation look like? Um, there's a few few strands to that. I think uh, one of the issues is people don't know its significance or, or where it is. So um, try and share the love for seagrass. Uh, that's that's a good start. Um, also realizing that as individuals we have an impact on the environment around us. So um, some of the issues that we've got associated with seagrass are water quality issues. So think about the impact that you're having and, and some of the, the household chemicals or mm -hmm. um, fertilizers and nutrients that you're using, because ultimately they're going to end up in the marine environment, which is um, a bit of a, 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 a no brainer, I suppose. Um, but even as much as you know, thinking about um, what detergents you're using and um, you're right to say that there's citizen science programs that people can get involved in and they're incredibly powerful tools and I think uh, the the citizen science project that we originally ran um, that then progressed into a bigger project mm -hmm. and Natural England which is the um, non-statutory conservation body in the UK that advises um, the marine management organization and DEFRA um, they looked at the success and the engagement within the, the project that we ran um, and then took that funding or took the, the concept of that and uh, applied to a Central European fund to keep the project going. And we now uh, work with partners in a, in a much bigger, more comprehensive project than the, the one that we started with. But without that interest and without showing that... Um, um, that engagement, um, then the, the second project, the, the bigger project, the more important project, perhaps, um, would not have been would not have been started. So, yeah, citizen science is a really powerful tool. I think there are 
um, some people in the ivory towers of science that think that it's uh, it's not as uh, as scientific or but having been involved in one i think they're, they're really powerful and um, they can lead to a lot of good stuff after um, and just also if if you familiarize yourself with where seagrasses are and if you're a recreational water user then um, just be conscious about your behavior on the water um, you know if, if you're power boating then uh, keep speed down over these areas uh, if you're choosing to uh, stop and um, anchor, then um, just be wary where these areas are. There are, uh, what we'd say is please look for other areas where you could anchor outside of a seagrass bed, but in the eventuality you, you, um, you need to, then uh, adopt good anchoring practices. Mm -hmm. So there are, um, there are, better ways to anchor in sensitive habitats uh, if you really need to but what we'd ask is is um, try and avoid them um, and yeah I think high raising the the profile of them and their significance uh, is is probably key because it seems the more people that well there's there's a huge section of society that is involved or engaged in environmental issues and this is a significant environmental issue mm -hmm. um, and it's one that can actually have a very positive uh, positive end the, the uh, conservation of coral reefs or the restoration of coral reefs almost requires the joint action of how many people on the planet is it seven billion people we all need to change the practices and we all need to think about our um, our uh, impact and footprint on on the planet. Whereas seagrasses is a bit more localized. Obviously, it's the largest uh, coastal habitat on on the planet. Um, so stretching from south coast of Australia all the way up to sort of um, northern northern Scandinavia and everywhere in between. Um, so. Yeah, just thinking each area can have a, um, it's more geographically focused, mm -hmm. each positive story, whereas um, obviously coral conservation um, has an element of that, but it is, is also being impacted by, I don't know, is it seven and a half million of us or a billion of us? Uh, yeah. The people. Well, I find it interesting that, you know, we, when I was in school and as long as I remember, it was always raising awareness about breast cancer or the plight of the panda. And, you know, it seemed mm. like such abstract ideas to just raise awareness. But I think <laughs> you're really seeing that raising uh, the profile does raise the significance of, of these vital habitats. And then it does help increase funding, increase people wanting to volunteer and kind of get involved and then it can actually have a positive outcome. So it's funny to, to see like from your personal experience, you have seen how just through the increased knowledge of these specific habitats, you have been able to secure um, funding to then, you know, help protect them. So that's, that's amazing. And I think, like you said, um, citizen science, well, a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, some people do, um, you know, consider it lesser than academic science. 
it's you know one of the most cost-effective ways to get a large amount of data from out there and especially if you're offering courses and people can actually get more involved and um, I don't know I think it just helps the more people are in it diving seeing getting to know it the more they want to help protect it as well yeah I think citizen science is always going to be open to a particular niche of, of people mm-hmm. um, I guess if you historically studied science in your tertiary education then uh, then it's going to be something that that's you're open to perhaps if you chose to become a plumber or, or um, yeah. more of a, a sort of tradey skill then you might have a less of an interest in it but um, even if you are part of that sort of working demographic then you, your kids might be interested in it you know and it's a great thing to do um, the, the wildlife trusts in the UK recently I think it was last week um, launched this amazing <laughs> citizen science app and um, what it does is it takes a picture of the number plate your registration plate of your car and it identifies the bugs that are splatted on the on the front <laughs> of the register plate so what they're looking to do is um, work out hotspots of where there's there's bugs and um, it also it's, it's sophisticated enough to sort of um, uh, identify some of the different species so you know there's all sorts of uh, if you're not a diver and you're not interested in in seagrasses but um, there's all sorts of really amusing citizen science projects out there and um uh they have a meaningful output they really do mm-hmm. and i think yeah historically i was a little bit skeptical of, of raising awareness and um yeah. but actually if you can um you know, at the aquarium, we receive about 270,000 visitors a year. Um, and by um, by creating this more ocean literate society, then we're, um, I think there's a tendency to, uh, for an individual to think about their impact on the planet and that we're not here forever and we don't own it and actually um perhaps don't need to uh, go and buy a big gas guzzling car and you know yeah. just, just things things like that slowly over time um that sort of got us into this mess in the first place so mm. no i think i think that's very well put um i really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me especially with the time difference and everything um and before we wrap up i do want to ask you well, not only to tell us where we can find all the information and um, also uh, if you have any maps to show where are all the seagrass beds, because I'd love to learn more as well um, about the hotspots around the world. Is there any cool websites or directories we can have a look at? Yeah, there's been a, a quite a body of work done by some guys in the eastern states um, and particularly a, a, a guy called Fred Short. And he has, uh, he's worked with um, scientists all over the planet to, to understand where the hotspots of seagrasses are. Um, so I can certainly send you those uh, or links to those if, if anybody watching the podcast is interested. Um, from the UK's perspective, then we are working with Natural England uh, presently on the European Union funded uh life recreational remedies project 
Um, so you can check out our website. I think we've got a new website. There's a holding page at the moment. We've got a new website going live in just two weeks' time. Um, and that will detail where we find seagrasses in the UK and, and their importance. And um, But there are there's a, a considerable uh, academic effort in South, southwestern Australia, certainly around Perth, yeah. um, to study seagrasses. And um, yeah, there's, uh, there's some good work that comes out of, is it Edith Cowan uh, mm -hmm. University? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can, um, the, the map, I think from Fred Short of, of where we find seagrasses and the number of uh, species that we find worldwide would be a really interesting thing for people Perfect. to see. Perfect, I'll definitely have a look at that. And um, the kind of final question I ask all my guests, um, which is what would be the one piece of advice? I know it's hard to narrow it down, but the one piece of advice you would give people who are listening to this podcast, um, to kind of help the oceans or help seagrass or kind of help uh, the planet in general? I know it's a big one, but um, I'm kind of trying to see how many different answers we can get to this question. <laughs> okay. Um, um, I think I've, I've sort of covered it really. And, and that's just be mindful of the, the impact that we all individually have. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, the the planet and the environment isn't i think human beings have a tendency to just look at it from a very personal perspective and it's like what can i accumulate what what house can i get what what car can i get what um is this is this domestic cleaner going to clean the the thing off the bottom of my oven um and i think just trying to become um slightly mindful and it doesn't you don't have to do it in a, a bohemian sort of hippie way but you can just do it in a, a sort of structured and um intelligent way um you know when when faced with some big decisions like um i need a new car do you do you need a um do you need such a big car that's going to have such such big sort of um gas consumption or uh, petrol consumption so um, and also your diet and, and the way that you live and travel. I think it's, it's a bit of an ask for everyone to sort of live like a um, Inuit and, and completely yeah. sustainably off the land. Um, but certainly within the Western world, we can make even small decisions that have a positive, in, that lessen our impact yeah. on, on the planet. And over time, um if we all start doing that regularly um we'll find ourselves in less of a hole and and some of the problems that we face are uh, less significant than if we just carry on living un uh, unsustainably thank you so much mark for taking the time to be here with me today it was really inspiring to have a chat to you and all the amazing work uh, you guys are doing and the Ocean Conservation Trust and the aquariums and the seagrass. 
I am looking forward to hopefully catching up again soon and yeah, just learning even more about seagrass. If you guys know anyone else who you'd like me to interview, please let me know. I'm always looking for amazing, inspirational human beings um, on their journey in ocean conservation. Feel free to send me an email, oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com. Also would like to say a special thanks to my Patreon uh, people who are just, thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for um, helping me continue doing the work I am doing. It means the world to me. Lastly, thank you so much to Graham Mose, who is the mind behind the funky beats in this episode and all the other Ocean Pancake episodes. Uh, he is based in Brisbane, so go check him out live, or if not, check him out online. Graham Mose Music. He is an absolutely inspirational uh, musician, so head on over that and see you guys next week.